0: Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm today's host, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries.
1: Hi, I'm Rahul Chudderbedi, co-host of Biotech 2050. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Flora is a two-sided marketplace where we're organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. I'm excited to welcome Bob Pru, CEO of Imagine Biosystems. Bob, appreciate you joining us today. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. We'd love to start off with your background and how you got to what you're working on today.
2: So my background is um, actually I was a biological anthropologist working on human evolutionary biology and got out of graduate school, started working in the computer industry and bumped into a company that was making what's today known as an Eliza plate reader. And they were looking for, this was back in the early 1980s when the IBM PC and the Apple II computers were just sort of hitting the market. And they were looking for someone to design a new software program to analyze the data out of this life science microplate reader technology. It's kind of interesting, um, their customer complaint was that they were getting 96 data points in one minute and being overwhelmed by the amount of data. And if you think about the terabytes of data that we generate today and everything going on with AI, et cetera, the idea that 96 data points would overwhelm somebody was kind of interesting. I happened to have a really strong background in biology and I had taught statistics as part of my graduate teaching assistantship and then been working in the computer industry for a couple of years. So it was a really unique fit, very serendipitous, if you will, that I bumped into the company. But it led me to a career that I've really enjoyed where I joined that company specifically to design and develop their first software product to analyze data. When we got the product done, they said, you need to go out and teach the salespeople how to sell this. And that led me into a career of sort of marketing and sales in the life sciences with various technologies. So I've probably had 30 plus years now at a variety of different companies, um, leading efforts in, in product development and early commercialization of new technologies. Been fortunate to have experiences with some very cool things, including single cell circulating tumor cell isolation technology and image-based approach to things. And ultimately that led me to bump into this company, Imagine Biosystems, uh, working in early cancer detection. Great.
1: Thanks for that background. So we'd love to unpack what you're working on now.
2: Yeah. So Imagine Biosystems is um, a medical device, medical imaging company. Um, I like to refer to it as we're trying to bring medical imaging into the 21st century. There are five basic ways to image the body today. MR, CT, PET, ultrasound, and x-ray. They all do very good jobs of creating images. You know, some are better at soft tissue than others. Some are better at um, imaging the brain, for example, than others. X-rays are great at being able to tell you you got a broken bone, for example. But the underlying problem for them is that they can identify what's known as a region of interest or a suspicious lesion, but they can't actually tell you if what's on the image is cancer, for example. So we're probably all intimately familiar with a woman getting a mammogram and seeing a spot, but they can't tell you if it's a fibrotic tumor or if it's in fact a malignant form of cancer. So what's really been missing uh, is this ability to identify the functional aspect of what you see in the image. So today, the only way we really diagnose cancer is once um, you've been identified as having a risk of some kind and, or you've seen a suspicious lesion by today's imaging technologies, we have to do an invasive procedure of getting a biopsy of the tissue. The pathologist then uh, stains for cancer or tumor cells And is able to tell you, but, you know, we've had to do an invasive procedure of trying to get to tissue to be able to analyze that. So what's been missing in the imaging world up till now has been what's known more precisely as functional imaging. And that is, can I actually characterize the functionality of what I see on the image in terms of the type of cell that's going on there? Up until now, PET tracers have probably come the closest to that. Most PET imaging uses what's known as FDG PET, which is a fluorine marker attached to a glucose molecule. And of course, glucose is a sugar It gets absorbed by highly metabolic cells. And so cancer cells being highly metabolic because they're highly proliferative. The problem is that Lots of other types of cells in the body are also absorbing a lot of glucose. And so you get a lot of non-specific pet tracer imaging because the glucose is going to go wherever there are highly metabolic cells. And so the functionality that we're really looking for is if I see a spot on my image, can I in fact identify that that is a truly cancer as opposed to something else? And so that's the specific problem that Imagine has been tackling. The company was originally founded by a physicist out of Los Alamos National Laboratories. He'd been working with the use of um, these highly magnetic sensors to map magnetic fields in the brain. Unfortunately, his second wife came down with breast cancer. And as a sort of classic scientist, he's like, gosh, I got to do something about that. I got to figure out how we can improve our ability to detect cancer. Good news is his second wife survived that. And he went on to work in this field of uh, magnetic relaxometry where he was able to see that if I could tag the cancer with a magnetic particle, I could use these highly sensitive magnetic sensors that I've been using to map the brain to identify the presence of the cancer by these magnetic particles. What I find most interesting about it is that this is really an example of two plus two equals five. That is, there there wasn't a really new invention here. The magnetic sensors were something that already existed. The ability to tag cancer cells by use of a targeting ligand like an antibody is exactly how they do it in the pathology lab today, only they use a fluorophore to look under a fluorescent microscope. And the use of magnetic particles has been known and their ability to be injected into patients and be tolerated has been known. What Dr. Flynn, the founder, realized was that I could combine those things of using magnetic sensors, magnetic particles, and targeting ligands like antibodies to come up with a non-invasive way to detect cancer without using radioactivity. And so that is now what we consider this new sixth way to do imaging. On top of the five that we've got, we've now got this new sixth way that actually provides a functional image not using radioactivity.
0: And quick question on that. So from the perspective of sensitivity or signal to noise, you know, one of the traditional challenges of the nanoparticles is uh, you can inject them and they'll go everywhere. Yes, you can put targeting moieties, but, you know, you're still going to get a bunch in the liver. You're still going to get a bunch in, in places you wouldn't expect. How are you guys sort of seeing that uh, element of, of sensitivity and, and specificity?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question that gets to the fundamental aspects of the way relaxometry works, for example, compared to MR. Type of imaging. So relaxometry is the principle that magnetic particles like this will align themselves to a magnetic field. And if you turn the magnetic field off, then they will lose their magnetization. So small particles like the ones we use, they're only 25 nanometers in diameter. So they're one one thousandth the size of a cell, for example. They have a property that's called superparamagnetism, which basically means they're non-magnetic until you turn on a magnetic field. And if you turn the magnetic field off, they stop being magnetic. So the other property of superparamagnetic particles is that the rate at which they lose their magnetization is dependent on whether they are attached to something or not attached to something. So particles that are injected and circulate in the body, but don't become attached, for example, to a cancer cell, after having been magnetized, when you turn the magnetic field off by Brownian relaxation, they instantly lose their magnetic property. A particle that is stuck to a cell, for example, can't lose its magnetization by what's known as Brownian motion or Brownian relaxation. And it undergoes a small change in the electron orbits of the iron content. Very technical explanation here, guys, sorry. But it's the principle here is that it undergoes a slower relaxation from the magnetized state. And so only particles that relax in the two to three seconds after the magnetic field is turned off are measurable. So if we turn on a magnetic field, we turn it off and we wait 50 milliseconds, in that dead time, unbound particles are going to relax by Brownian relaxation and effectively disappear. I turn on my ultra sensitive squid detector and I now measure for a magnetic field. And if I see any magnetic field, I know it's a slowly relaxing particle. And the only reason for that particle to be slowly relaxing is because it's stuck to something. And since I used an antibody to get it to stick to a particular type of cancer cell, I know my magnetic signal is coming from a particle stuck to that particular type of cancer cell. So the specificity comes from the targeting ligand of the antibody, and the sensitivity comes from the lack of background noise, because unbound particles don't generate a signature.
0: Very interesting. You know, I love the way you've set up the context of the solution and the technology, which is we've taken antibodies, which have been used in a myriad of different contexts, right? In uh, therapeutics, we've then taken and diagnostics and, and pathology, and we've taken nanoparticles, which have been used for imaging and sort of combined the two. Exactly. So have you, have you seen a faster time to the clinic or to a commercial circumstance, given the heritage of both of those technologies mm-hmm. independently?
2: So, quite interestingly, last July, as we've been moving through our program and getting closer and closer to trying to seek regulatory approval for our technology, last July we had been in dialogue with the FDA and had submitted to the FDA a, for what they call the Breakthrough Device Program. So in the drug world, there are orphan products and fast-track drugs. In the device world, in our, our product is regulated as a device, not a drug. In the device world, they uh, recently came up with a program that they called Breakthrough Devices. And in July, the FDA notified us that, in fact, they consider our technology as a breakthrough device. So effectively, the review from them says, if this does what you say it's going to do, this is going to change medical practice. We don't have a way today to non-invasively, without the use of radioactivity, specifically identify the presence of a tumor cell. So they have given us breakthrough device status. That doesn't change the hurdles that we have to get through from a regulatory perspective, but it does accelerate the dialogue with the FDA. So it means that we can move more quickly through our conversations with them with regard to answering questions about what testing we're going to do and how many patients, for example, we might test, et cetera. So, yes, in fact, we're finding that because this is, in fact, a new thing, they're very interested to try to help us move this through and see if, in fact, it works the way we intended it work.
1: Great, Bob. Have you noticed that there's any signaling or positive signaling with other regulatory bodies outside the U.S. once you were granted that breakthrough designation?
2: So we haven't approached the European Union yet with regard to that, but we have been working in Australia We are a publicly listed company on the Australian Securities Exchange, so our parent company is, in fact, an Australian company. And there are some very favorable aspects of doing first-in-human studies, for example, in Australia. They have a a slightly different method where the TGA, which is the Therapeutic Good Authority in Australia, Mm -hmm. the equivalent of the FDA in the United States, actually has created an environment that they don't have to get directly involved in in first-in-human studies, They've come up with a way to streamline first in human studies to help accelerate the ability to try to get through that first step. And so we've been looking at doing some of our initial clinical work in Australia to take advantage of that favorable environment. But more specifically to your question, we haven't approached any of the other Uh, larger uh, regulatory agencies on a global basis, because as far as I know, there isn't quite the equivalent program for devices
1: that the FDA has come up with as this breakthrough device program and would love to understand for our listeners why the decision to list on the Australian stock exchange. I know there's a, it's it's becoming a more popular avenue to go public and access the public markets but would love to hear your perspective on. It.
2: Sure. So the company when I joined them uh, back in 2015 was a division of another company called Manhattan Scientifics. They are a OTCQB listed company that effectively specializes in identifying New technologies or intellectual property, incubating those along and then either spinning them out or, or licensing them out. They had bumped into, they had been the ones who had bumped into Dr. Flynn's work back probably in 2011 and had acquired the technology from Dr. Flynn, who was getting ready to retire at that time. And so it was a, it was a good transition for Dr. Flynn as well as for Manhattan Scientifics. After uh, spending a few years incubating the technology along, and after I got introduced to the company, it became clear that probably the best way to provide adequate funding for the company was to spin it out from underneath Manhattan Scientifics and restructure the company and refinance that. But because they were... A publicly listed company and had shareholders they really felt that the spinoff had to result in some form of public entity as well they they needed to provide some assurance to their shareholders that they had liquidity in their ownership interest in the spinoff and so uh, we looked at a variety of different ways to do that everything from creating a nasdaq listing to other us listings including the -the over-the-counter markets in the us we looked at other foreign exchanges I think as a general comment, I would say that a pre-revenue company that's still in developmental stage, in particularly in the biotech space, where your timelines are a bit longer than, say, a straight tech company or a fintech company, doing a public listing on something like the NASDAQ or NYSE could be really difficult. It's high compliance costs. So Sarbanes-Oxley rules in the United States typically cost a company a million dollars or more to remain compliant. And we just felt that we were a little too far away from a significant milestone that would allow us to sort of sustain a a NASDAQ-like listing. So that really required us to look outside the United States. And to your point, the ASX has made a concerted effort to focus on small cap and micro cap companies, and in particular, has done a lot in the biotech space. The favorable regulatory environment in Australia for biotech companies adds to that. And so we did our homework and looked at the compliance issues with ASX. And what we found was it's a very well-regarded good governance practice, good compliance requirements, but about a third of the cost of a NASDAQ listing. And so we managed to have some very good people that were connected to the financial markets in Australia and felt that we could adequately fund the company by doing an ASX listing and therefore meet our obligations to our prior parent company and their shareholders by being able to create a spinoff company that was able to remain funded, but publicly listed.
0: Well, you know, in, in that circumstance, since you, it sounds like you guys had vetted many different options or exchanges all across the world and obviously settled on the ASX, what advice would you give to other CEOs and biotech leaders as they themselves prepare, ponder, you know, an IPO, whether it be on the US markets or elsewhere?
2: Yeah. So I think one of the key things is, you know, there's pluses and minuses to venture capital back funding versus an IPO in in the capital markets of publicly traded companies. So the thing that I would probably give people the most guidance on is twofold. If you're going to do an IPO or or, a public offering Make sure you really do understand the compliance issues, the cost of remaining compliant and that. But really, you want, to assure, you want to be able to be assured that the investor base is going to be comfortable. The company that they're investing in is able to be properly vetted, if you will, or, or well regarded, that your ability to report to the marketplace is going to be transparent. And therefore, the investors can stand behind their investment in your company. The second piece of it is just making sure that you're aware of those pluses and minuses of venture capital versus public company. The, the good news is with a with public entity, you have access to the capital markets at any point in time. Um, the bad news is that your valuation is transparent. Your valuation is what your share price is um, at any given day and how the investor community sees it your share price, uh, for example, as opposed to venture capital, there's always a negotiation and discussion about what's the fair market value of your company or the valuation of your company pre or post money. So that's always a negotiated thing. Whereas once you become public, your market cap and your valuation is exactly what your trading price is on a daily basis. And so if you don't have good understanding and control of Either your milestones or your business flow, for example, when, when you might be able to have revenues or be profitable, all of those things start to add variability to the public's perception of who you are, and that will ultimately re- reflect in your share price, and that ultimately re- may impair your ability to raise additional working capital. You really have to have a good understanding of the overall picture. It's not just all pie in the sky. Well, let's do an IPO and we're all going to be happy.
1: (laughs) Only if
0: it was that easy. (laughs) Exactly.
1: We're all dealing with the current situation with COVID-19 and we're doing this remotely for the first time as a result of that. And both San Diego and Boston are in some form of lockdown mode right now. Would love to hear how, how you guys as a company are dealing with the current situation and what impact, if any, it's had on day-to-day business.
2: Yeah, I, I think that we're a small organization. And so we've fortunately managed to have things already in place that would allow the majority of us to be able to work remotely. The timing from our perspective is also such that we've pretty much exited the preclinical phase of development of our first intended product for the detection of HER2 metastatic breast cancer, and are in the process of translating that to try to get into the clinic later this year. And as a result of that, we don't have a lot of, for example, of laboratory work that we're doing. Much of our work is dealing with the regulatory agency, dealing with clinical study sites to try to get them lined up. And so the immediate impact on us is that um, we're able to work from home by and large. We have a small number of people that can go into the lab and we put uh, policies and procedures in place to make sure that they have taking precautions associated with uh, not too many people in the lab at the same time, et cetera. What you've seen is a huge, I'll, I'll use the term loosely, corrections in the marketplace, huge devaluation of m- many types of companies. And even though, for example, we would say, that we are not directly affected by COVID-19. We don't have supply chain issues. We don't have a product being made for us, uh, for example, in in China or someplace that had pauses in their businesses. So that just um, has made it important that we have plans and that in place to be able to withstand temporary disruptions like this. We don't see today the COVID-19 directly impacting us, but there is clear indirect impact in that we have to have precautions in place and uh, working with our collaborators like the hospitals where we intend to do the clinical study to, to make sure that by the time we're ready to do our study, hopefully things will have settled in the hospital systems, et cetera. So I think even for a company like us that is not revenue generating yet in the development of a product, you really have to be thoughtful about where along your development timeline, the various things might come into play. And in particular, make sure that you've got the funding in place to be able to withstand some kind of disruption, because in some way, shape or form, it's likely to disrupt your business.
0: It's a really great sage advice, I think, for for the broader community, especially as many of these companies perhaps haven't been through a, a systemic shock like this before, right, in their lives. One thing I'm curious about is as a leader in, in the biotechnology field and as a business leader as well, it's often good hygiene to reforecast and replan as you sort of think through the next three quarters of your execution. However, you know, you mentioned the concept of clinical trials, and that's certainly an important interim milestone for Imagine. Now, what advice do you have for those folks who maybe are in the midst of a trial and might be potentially having to grapple with the effects of COVID-19 on their program or project?
2: Yeah, in fact, we just got a, uh, an exchange with a colleague of ours that works for a different company here in the San Diego area, and she, in particular, uh, focused on helping them with their clinical studies, and we heard word from her that their clinical studies have been put on hold. So there's a very real example of somebody that we know working in another company in the midst of doing some clinical studies and it's just been put on hold. So I think that for everybody as senior management and directors of companies, you have to be able to think of contingency plans or think of of risk mitigation. And I think one of the things that this COVID-19 is going to help do for companies on a go forward basis is provide the basis for management and boards to be thinking about risk mitigation a bit more. I think oftentimes we tend to think of risk mitigation as: Do I have a secondary supplier of something? Um, do I have uh, an alternative uh, distribution channel? Do I, you know, some more tactically oriented things? It's these things like COVID nineteen that comes out of the blue that. You have to try to anticipate the ultimate risk to your business is everything suddenly gets put on hold and it's the, the classic force majeure um, aspect of things. It's out of our control, but what does it mean for our company and how do we
1: survive getting through this? Yeah, it's, it's a great point. You know, typically risk mitigation is a functional group at much later stage companies. And this is certainly forcing all of us to think about it early on because who knows the next time something like this could come around. So that's that's great advice.
2: You know, especially in our biotech space, you know, there's a a classic risk matrix that's associated with getting ready for your regulatory submissions and everything. And have you thought through all the risks, but they're all typically very tactically oriented things associated with the risk of the product in terms of its performance or supply chain, et cetera. So I think that this will be an exercise for management uh, and boards on a go forward basis to maybe occasionally take a step back and think about their company in a bigger
0: picture way. Yeah, you know, I can certainly see from a, a general manufacturing perspective, a lot of risk assessments and redundancies being put in place around supply and and transit, et such. But, you know, I'd imagine if you're a early stage or mid-stage biotech with maybe a phase one or phase two asset, you've only got one partner that's manufacturing, right, API. You've only got one program that you have to support. You've only got one site maybe that you're stepping up, et cetera. So it's an all or nothing almost bet, right, given yeah. the resource constraint inside. And, and
2: with the resource constraint, you're absolutely right that You make the decision that I'm going to put all my eggs in that basket because I can't afford the cost of redundancy. So the question isn't whether you should have had redundancy in your supply chain or your vendor. The question is, what are you going to do if it does get disrupted?
0: Very much so. Awesome. Well, this is an awesome discussion and we really appreciate you being our first uh, guinea pig, if you will, for our first remote podcast. Really appreciate learning both about you and your background, as well as Imagine. sounds like you guys are doing something really exciting and uh, you know we're all really eager to, to have you back on and, and see how the company progresses in the coming weeks and months.
2: Great. Thanks very much for the invitation. A pleasure to be here. Thanks, Bob. Stay safe. You too.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.